Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking the tanker market. Traditionally highly cyclical, offering outsized reward and outsized losses. The last 12 months have been extraordinarily difficult in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. However, the next decade also looks very challenging as the sector faces the twin forces of decarbonization and digitization, making it even harder to predict where the market's going and where to make investments. Our guest is Richard Matthews. Richard is the Director of Consultancy and Research at EA Gibson Shipbrokers. Richard has over a decade in the sector. He specializes in the tanker markets and also oversees research for decarbonization at the shipbrokers. Richard, thanks for joining. Thank you, Paul. Good to be here. So we're talking the tanker market, the current state of it and some of the future challenges and opportunities that are out there, especially in the wake of a a commodities super cycle, arguably. Can you just, before we sort of dig into some of the trends and some of the uh, influences on the market itself, can you just set it up for us, perhaps for those who are less familiar, including myself, what's the general terminology, the structure and the drivers of the market itself? Can you just give us a perhaps an overview of the participants and, and what really, what types of ship is encompassed within the, the tanker world? Yeah, sure, of course. The key participants really are the ship owners and the ship charterers, i.e. those that have a need for ships. Now, the charterers will be household names. They'll be the big oil companies. They'll be the big oil traders that, although perhaps not household names, of course, are very familiar to us in the oil market, be it the Vitals, the Trafiguras. The oil side will have the Shells, the Exxons, the BPs, and so forth. So, Your charterers, those who need the ships, they are very much the big multinational companies. We then have the ship owners. Now, these companies vary in size. They may be listed on the New York Stock Exchange and have 100 vessels. They may be based in Athens and they may operate two or three vessels. So it's really sort of very diverse um, and the market is very fragmented on that side. But fundamentally, those are your two key players. There's other companies that kind of fill the ground between, maybe companies, we call them operators. They may not own the assets, but they may uh, manage them from a commercial perspective for the ship owners. And then really sitting in the middle is where a company like Gibson's would come into play. So we're a ship broker. Our job is really to try and match those who own the ships with those who need to charter the ships, i.e. the oil companies. We'll effectively go out there, find a vessel that's available at the right time, negotiate the price and arrange all the contractual terms for that vessel to carry the cargo of oil, in this case, from A to B. So those are the main participants in the sector. In terms of the vessels themselves, it's a very diverse market. I think really, in terms of what I focus on, is the bigger end of the market, deep sea shipping. The biggest vessels that we deal with are called VLCCs very large crude carriers. Now, these vessels will carry 2 million barrels of oil. They're used for long-haul trade. And they're about 330 metres long, which, to put it in context, is about the length of three Premier League football football pitches. So very big assets. And you won't believe how big they are until you actually go on board. And then you have different sizes. You have, um, I won't go through all of them, but, for example, a Suez Max, which is the biggest vessel that can transit the Suez Canal, down to um, the MR product carrier, the medium range product carrier, which will carry around about 35 to 40,000 tons of refined products. So those are really the kind of the main concepts in deep sea tanker shipping we deal with. There are smaller vessels operating, say, intra-Europe, which can carry just a few hundred or just a few thousand tons. But fundamentally, the big part of the market we look at, which is about 5,200 ships, is those VLCCs to, to medium range vessels. So you've got the owners, you've got the charterers who are moving their cargo and you've got the, the brokers and we'll come back to the, I guess, the changing role of brokers, you know, when we, we look at some of the other trends going on around digitization and so forth. Historically, there are two key drivers of the tanker market. One is oil demand and the other is 
ship supply. Can you address both of those, starting with oil demand for us? Yeah, of course. I mean, on the oil demand perspective, a lot of the dynamics are going to be very familiar to those who operate in the oil market on a day-to-day basis, but don't necessarily get too involved in shipping. So for crude tankers, one of the biggest factors will be OPEC or OPEC plus as it is today in terms of very much in terms of what they're doing on the oil supply side. So recent times, of course, we've had severe OPEC production cuts, and that's, of course, has reduced the amount of oil in the market for tankers to transport. So very much what's happening in terms of oil production is key. Over the past sort of six, seven years, of course, the US has become more and more of a factor in terms of its crude exports, but also refined products as well. And then we had other dynamics on the refining side. So really here we're talking about regional supply demand balances of different products, what that might do in terms of arbitrages and how traders might look to exploit that. But from a demand perspective um, in tankers, we have this concept called ton mile demand. And effectively, that's really saying, well, how many tons of cargo versus the distance that it has to be carried? Because, of course, the longer distance is required, the more vessels or the higher the vessel utilization that we would see. There's also those volatile factors that come into play as well. So key things here can be something as basic as the weather. Of course, you know, we're in Atlantic hurricane season right now. And although that's not had a major impact on shipping this year, it can be um, incredibly severe, particularly if the U.S. Gulf refining center gets hit, for example. Um, We would then see, you know, bigger demand to ship products into the U.S. Atlantic seaboard. So that can be a big factor. It's always a big unknown, but always a big creator of volatility. So those are the key kind of demand side factors. Um, Really, as things are right now, the focus is very much on OPEC plus and what their strategy is going to be going forwards. Of course, so far, it's been very measured. So we're only seeing incremental increases in oil supply, and that's making it quite painful for the tanker sector overall. And then the other key bit, of course, is the the ship supply side. I think it takes a couple of years for one of these ships to be built from you know, laying the keel through to delivery. Uh, they're very expensive assets, you know, irrespective of, of the size of them. And they have this sort of, I guess, tw- 15, 20, even 25-year lifespan and lots of considerations around, obviously, inspections. Start, frequency starts to, to increase as you get toward the end of that lifespan. How much is supply of new vessels to the market a driver compared to oil demand itself on freight rates, I guess? Yeah, sure. I mean, what's sort of interesting is we never or we very, very rarely have the market balanced. And what I mean by that is the the amount of ships we have available matching the demand we have um, for oil transportation. So there's always an imbalance in supply. You know, very simply, if we have too many vessels, of course, then that will lead to weak freight rates. If we have, you know, not enough vessels, then of course, we're going to have much higher freight rates. But that's kind of your your short term view. You know, are there enough vessels in position right now of the right age? And you touched upon this, the right criteria to move my cargo. Now, the oil tanker industry has become much safer over the past few decades. And that's been driven by oil companies taking a very strong stance on safety in the sector. So now we tend to have this kind of um, this process called vetting. And effectively, it may be that there are 10 tankers of the right design available to move your cargo on the dates you require. Maybe only three of those meet your internal vetting criteria. And that could be driven by their age, their inspection status, the company that operates those vessels. So it's more than just, I need a VLCC there's one there on the right dates. It's more a case of, do I want to charter that vessel? Is that vessel meeting my safety criteria that I may have? So that's a key factor coming in, very much supply on the day. And that supply on the day, as I mentioned on the weather perspective earlier, that supply on the day could be impacted by weather. So if we have lots of storms, we have delays, say in the Turkish Straits in the Mediterranean, which is quite a common factor, that could hold up vessels and mean that those vessels are not available as and when you need them. So that's certainly that short term, we call it positional supply, whether or not there are vessels right now on the day you need them is one factor. But what you touched upon, Paul, was the shipbuilding side of things. 
And I said how very rarely do we see the amount of vessels being demanded meeting that demand or being balanced with that demand. And that's because it takes a couple of years to build a ship. Now, that's a generalization. We've seen ships built in shorter timeframes than that. But that's your typical lead time from going to the shipyard, negotiating the specification, the price, agreeing delivery slots and taking deliveries. So you may look at the market today and say, well, you know, the market is strong or it's weak. Therefore, I want to order vessels. But you always have to remember those vessels will not arrive in your fleet for probably two years time. And actually, as the market is right now, shipbuilding capacity is very tight. So you might not get a vessel until the end of 2023 or even going into 2024. So that sort of shipbuilding um, industry is key. That has a big impact on where we see the future of the market going. If we see that there are a lot of vessels on order, then we might be concerned that freight rates are going to be weaker in the future when those vessels deliver unless we also foresee a very strong demand picture. But likewise, if we see, as the case is today, a relatively limited order book, then we might be more bullish for freight a few years down the line. So that's very much a key factor to focus on. You know, what sort of supplier vessels are being built? What type of vessels are being built as well? And do those type of tankers match the demand? And I think something we'll probably talk about later is, again, what type of vessel does the charter of today demand for tomorrow is it dual fuel or is it something else and that very much fits in with the decarbonization piece and that's where things start to get a bit murky right i think we'll come on to that over the next decade as you see this decarbonization energy transition some of the old playbooks are you know, need to be might need to be thrown away before we get there it is an incredibly cyclical market in some ways even more so than other you know the commodity market in general can you just give us an overview of, of of that cycle and really how to be a ship owner is about ultimately managing that cycle? If you want to look for an industry and find you know stable year on year income, then you know shipping or certainly tankers is not going to be the market for you. And as you've said, it is very very much cyclical. We've seen in the past companies you know want to get involved in shipping because they see it as a, an attractive proposition, yeah, and maybe they've been looking at that industry when it's been in an up cycle and when we're seeing very high freight rates and very high earnings being generated for the ship owners but those cycles seldom last more than two or three years one of the key reasons why they seldom last more than two or three years is because you can build your way out of a cycle what i mean by that is you can order more ships and in two years time those vessels come into the market and all of a sudden you've got more vessels than you need but what we see very much from a shrewd ship owner, um, ship owner and very much what the Greeks are very good at is managing that cycle and having the longevity to last through the peaks and troughs and time your entry and your exit right. If we look at the market maybe two years ago, you could order a new build VLCC, so the largest crude carrier class, for about 86, well, maybe cheaper, but let's say $85 million, depending on the country of build and the spec. And today, that asset will be worth $100 million. So in just the space of a couple of years, new building prices have gone up by $15 million. And we've seen some ship owners, um, again, many of them Greek, but investing in those assets two years ago, some not even taking delivery of them because they were still under construction and reselling them for a significant profit before they even take delivery of the assets. Now, the flip side to that is that we see companies um, time and time again in the past buying those assets at the peak and you could for example invest in a, in a new VLCC today for a hundred million dollars but because of the cyclicality and asset prices in the market a new build vessel might only be worth 90 million dollars in a few years time and suddenly you've entered at a high point in the market and now everything you need to do throughout the trading life of that vessel is making up for that overpayment you've made in the asset so very much buying the assets timing is absolutely critical and the same for selling those assets and where we've seen people succeed in this market is having the staying power to wait until the right time where it's gone wrong is where companies have been forced to sell you know distressed assets and they've had to take the market price at the time and i'm sure as you know when you sell when you're forced to it's normally not a good time so actually it's the is the responsiveness the of 
the market to be able to respond to rates through ultimately very quick asset build times that causes this sort of hyper, you know, cyclicality. It really does pose, as you say, can it can go really well for you or really badly. Yeah, exactly. Thanks very much for that great setup. As you look back over the last five years or so, just to sort of bring us up to where we are today, clearly there's been a few things that stand out. We've had kind of a, a pretty volatile experience with, especially under the Trump administration and trade policies. We've, of course, had COVID. We've had IMO 2020. And another thing you, you point out in our previous discussions was about this Brexit, which I'm looking forward to discussing. Can you just give us, you know, so the last five years, has it been a, a good time or a bad time to be a, a ship owner? Well, I think if you go back at just a little bit more than five years, you know, really, we had a kind of downturn in the industry through 2011, 12 and 13. And that was a hangover from what we've just been discussing. So we had overinvestment during the boom years prior to the financial crisis. And those assets were delivering during a sort of a slower period, more of an economic downturn. It took time for supply and demand to rebalance those assets to be absorbed back in um, by demand growth before the market started to upturn. And we started to see that upturn coming in through 2014 and 2015. And again, that upturn through 2014 was driven by not that many new build vessels being delivered. So we had a low order book. We had a low number of new build vessels coming into the market. And then we actually saw some factors coming into play, which we didn't necessarily expect. I remember speaking to a client, I'm not sure if it was 2014 or early 2015, but we were talking about OPEC strategy. And this was at the time where we were seeing the market, the oil market starting to become oversupplied. There was more and more US shale coming to the market. And we looked at the supply demand balances on the oil side and we said, well, OPEC are surely going to have to cut production. That's that's the only way to balance this market. And OPEC did the complete opposite. They increased supply. I think it was through 15, 16, if I remember correctly. We had a big increase in oil supply. That increased the amount of oil being traded by sea and therefore increased demand for tankers. That also generated a contango in the trading market, which then led to a big increase in floating storage. And that created this artificial demand boom in the tanker market as such. So we had this artificial demand, plus we had the trading demand. And we had a boom market really from the end of 2014 into 2015 and the early stages of 2016. So Probably not quite two-year upturn, but around about a two-year upturn. And of course, during that period, when the market was firm, we started to see interest. Hey, tankers are earning good money. Let's let's go and invest in that sector. So again, the orders started coming through. More vessels were being built. And by sort of 17, 18, we were starting to see um, higher deliveries coming through to the sector and higher fleet growth coming through. I'm fascinated by the story of you started to see, obviously, in a broader seek for yield to alternative asset classes, post-financial crisis, low interest rates, all the other, the rest of it. Was that sort of 14, 15 period when we started to see private equity groups come in? It varies depending on the sector you're looking at, but it was a little bit earlier than that where we saw some new companies listing on the New York Stock Exchange or looking to raise money in the States. And that's where we started to see more of this private money coming into shipping. Now, when we say private money, there's always been private money from you know established ship-owning families, but as we said, private equity in this case. And that we started to see some of that interest was actually counter-cyclical, and it was more through sort of 2013, sort of early 2014, when new building prices were low, and some of that was shrewd investment. I think really where it came unstuck was really when suddenly the industry wasn't generating the earnings that it had been through 15, 16, and suddenly shipping companies are losing money and that hole needs to be plugged from somewhere and the assets aren't worth enough to just divest and sell the assets. So that really kind of caused a problem for a few years. Um, we saw in some cases private equity effectively taking over some of these companies that weren't performing and bringing them under their management rather than letting them operate more as as free entities. So there was a big shift in the industry then and eventually um, some players stuck it out. Some players um, just decided to get out and, and take what they could at the time. But it was a, it was an interesting time. Was it extraordinarily bad? Or is this just, we have 10-year memories in organisations and it was just as bad 
in the late 90s. It was bad in the, was there anything exogenous to this that really meant it was, you know, uh, unforeseen and extraordinary in the depths no. of health? I mean, it depends. It depends who you ask, really. But, you know, from our perspective, uh, and certainly having the benefit of being in the market in the last year, we look back at it and say it wasn't that bad. The first sort of things we look at is we say, well, can the vessel earn enough money to cover its OPEX, its operating expenditure? That's the first point that we always look at. And throughout that period, on average, the vessels could cover their OPEX and they could also cover some of their CAPEX as well. So from that perspective, it wasn't ideal, but it wasn't a complete disaster. And again, these downturns don't tend to typically last that long. You know, what we would typically see is two, maybe three years of upturn, maybe two, three years of downturn. Of course, that's a a generalization, but the assets were losing money, but not a significant amount. And you're if you're factoring it over twenty years. Traditional ship owner would be like, well, I I get it, right? You know, uh, half the time I own it, it's losing money, but half the time I have it, it's making significant money. Exactly. And and when you look at if you average the earnings out over, okay, maybe twenty years isn't realistic for a tanker these days. But if you average the earnings over fifteen years, then you're generally in profitable territory. You just need to be around for those fifteen years to to earn that. And of course, as we said earlier, most owners would probably say, well, I'm going to choose my entry and exit time wisely and maybe actually make more money than the industry average through that period. So, yes, there were some tough years, but it's nothing out of what the ordinary in terms of what tankers would typically go with. But I suppose some of these big companies, when you have a lot of vessels and you're losing money on all of those vessels, the multiples are very big. And likewise, the multiples are very big when you're making a lot of money on those vessels. You know, if you look at the earnings through, say, the second quarter of 2020, and some of these companies have got 60 to 100 ships and they're making very high profits on all of them, then the multiples can be substantial. But of course, as time goes by, they might not make that the following year. So I think the main issue was, you know, if you're looking for stable, regular income, it's difficult to do that in shipping. And you need to be willing to stay there for the long term and time your exit correctly. Because just going back to private equity and their involvement in this term you use, Prexit, they've typically got a five-year horizon, investment horizon. That really doesn't work out too well in shipping, right? When you've kind of got these three-year cycles, you've really got to be quite lucky to, to get it right. Yeah, it's not so that wouldn't work out, but as you said, you've got to be pretty lucky. I mean, if you're really sort of set on five years, you know, that's not going to be ideal unless you've managed to spot the opportunity a few years before the market upturn starts. But even in that scenario, you would have to accept some losses on the front end to make up for those at the rear end. And have we seen have we seen that exodus of those the private equity groups that did get into shipping mid decade starting to I guess in the wake of COVID, that's that's really had an impact. Yeah, it's it's been mixed. I mean, to say that every private equity firm's got out is, is not correct. But certainly there was a large scale exit from the sector and there are a lot of people that got their fingers burnt by playing around with shipping. Now, the irony of that is, is again, it varies massively across sector. I mean, if you look at certain sectors at certain times, they might be performing well. I mean, we'll talk about soon about how bad the tanker market is right now. But if you look at the container market right now, Hapag Lloyd, one of the big container lines, made more profit in the last six months than they did in the previous 10 years. So that kind of shows you how the fortunes of that sector have changed and are completely different to how tankers are right now. Dry bulk carriers, again, they are currently earning three or four times their break even. So again, very much certain sectors doing doing very well. And if you look at a private equity firm, they're unlikely to be pure play in tankers. They'll probably have investments across different sizes. I think, um, and I don't follow the other size, the other um sectors you know dry bulk and containers that closely but i think what was probably more painful last time is that we did have times when tankers bulkers container ships offshore lng all basically at very low levels at the same time and of course if nothing in your portfolio is performing it becomes very painful yeah okay so let's get there so then covid comes along you've already had a whole bunch of black swan events to use the term you know in the fundamentals around trade policy and so forth 
it's already very, you know, it's a tough picture as you've just painted. Then we have COVID and it really has been a, an anacerebris for the tanker market. Exactly. And I think, um, you know, before we talk about COVID, we just sort of go back a year and we all think about, you know, during 2019, we're all sitting there and the entire oil market is thinking about what 2020 is going to bring. And of course, you know, the word COVID doesn't exist. We've never heard of that before. The word IMO is the most pertinent word um, across the oil markets at the time. And we're all thinking about, okay, right, midway through 2019, we now need to start placing our bets for 2020. We need to think about, you know, what what the price spreads are going to be on fuel. Do we invest in scrubbers or not? Do we try and hedge our exposure? How do we do that? Do we take vessels on time charter because we think rates are going to go up? So there's lots of people sort of taking their position for 2020. And we all expected, everyone expected 2020 in the tanker markets to be a good year. It was a good year when you average it out, but it was a good year for the wrong reasons. And I think um, one of the other factors that COVID did for a lot of analysts in the energy sector, not just shipping, is it gave us all a get out of jail card on our IMO 2020 forecasts. So our forecast for freight rates, our forecast for spreads, our forecast for demands by grades, complete get out of jail card for everyone. And IMO 2020, this was new regulation coming in about the uh, sulfur emissions, uh, or the type of um, uh, fuel oil that ships could use, right? Exactly. So it's cutting the fuel oil content down um, quite significantly, the sulfur content down significantly for 2020s. And you could either you could either do scrubbers or change the the engine, you know, it, it was actually at the time and it was and it still was a very as you said, you know, it was the big challenge facing the tanker market and lots of dire predictions were made about gas oil whatever it might be, right? It was quite an event. Yeah, exactly. We were talking about gas oil prices at $1000 a ton and you know, we probably got into the hundreds at one point, you know, during 2020 because of COVID-19. So, as I said, that completely wiped the slate clean. Actually, the transition um, from 3.5% sulfur content fuel to 0.5% went very smoothly. There was, of course, some issues, but when you're talking about all of the vessels globally, not just tankers, you know, you're talking probably around about 50,000 vessels that are burning high sulfur fuel oil before that. The transition was was relatively smooth. But then, of course, you know, if we look back going into January 2020, started to see a little bit of talk about covid coming on the map i remember i was going to holiday on holiday in asia second half of february covid was there but even when i came back from malaysia on the first of march um we knew that it was spreading but you know we managed to have a holiday in asia in mid-february without any impact at all on our trip and obviously things changed very very quickly after that as it started spreading through the world now for the tanker market Obviously, at first, we didn't quite know how things were going to go. We started seeing um, you know, talk of an OPEC production cut. That went completely the opposite direction with um, there being a fallout within the OPEC group. And of course, we saw a significant increase in crude production at the same time as we saw a significant collapse in demand. And of course, in the oil futures market, that opened up super contango much bigger than we'd ever seen in the past. And the first thing that traders did was find every last piece of storage they could to put that oil on. And of course, you soon run out of land-based storage. Floating storage is is a very good option. It's very flexible because you can move the assets, you can move the cargoes, whereas on land-based inventories, it's more tricky. So we saw a huge increase in floating storage overnight. We also saw a big increase in exports from the Middle East, but also Russia and other countries as well. So there was more demand to move oil and more demand to store oil. And that's where we saw freight rates go to record levels in the tanker market during the second quarter, I think it was, maybe in the end of the first quarter, but around about that time. And it was a very, very good time for the tanker market. But ultimately, it was incredibly short-lived because whilst on the one hand, we could see that demand had collapsed, supply hadn't adjusted, and therefore there was a big oversupply that had to be stored. We all knew that eventually that could not continue. And eventually, OPEC would be forced to act and, of course, cut production from the market. And they did so in a spectacular fashion, taking out a significant amount of supply in a very short space of time. 
which then effectively turned off the taps um, for tanker trade globally. And we saw a big collapse in tanker trade, supported by floating storage initially, because many vessels were tied up in that trade for um, certainly the second quarter going into the third quarter. But as that storage started to unwind, as traders exited those storage plays, vessels were coming back into the market and there just wasn't a trade for them. And that sort of really brings us on to where we have been since sort of late summer last year. We've had most tanker sectors earning below their operating expenses, aside from the odd bit of volatility here and there for effectively a year now. Um, and yeah. of course, that's very painful. Now, if you look at last year on average, last year on average was a good year in the tanker market. But if you look at the last 12 months, it's been certainly the worst period that we've got in the data we have. And that goes back to, in a lot of detail, it goes back to the year 2000. But we do have some data going back to the 70s as well. And you know, we're struggling to find times where the market was, was worse than it is right now. Mm. And not necessarily less bleak looking forward, right, with, with Delta and, and so forth. So I want to move on to the sort of, I think, the, the next decade or at least up to 2030. Before we get there, I do have sort of one aside. I'd be struggling where to fit this, but I, I kind of wanted to get your take on it because I think it's relevant to our audience. Sure. So one of the trends over the last decade, even further back, was um, you know, certainly, I think, throughout my career, you've seen oil traders, trading houses, and even some of the majors periodically launch or have the desire to launch freight trading desks. Yep. You know, thinking there's an opportunity, there's margin there, we can bring that in-house, we can even offer that to third parties, etc. Where have those efforts led? Is that something that is still a viable business plan you see out there? Can you just talk to that a little bit? So we certainly, across the trading companies, we do see some some very successful freight desks. And of course, you know they have the power of a trading company behind them. They're very well resourced and they've also historically in the past had a different perspective let's say to the traditional owner so we'll see different appetites for risk of course we'll see the use of ffas we'll see the use of a diversified chartering strategy and we have seen some of these players being very successful so it's certainly something which we now see as as being the norm most big oil companies most traders have a freight trading department shipping is seen less as or chartering as we would call it typically is is seen less as just a a cost and more as an opportunity we've also seen some of the big traders over the past few years moving into owning the assets which goes completely against what most of the big oil companies have done so most of the big oil companies have looked to wind down the amount of vessels they own and move more towards a strategy of leasing or chartering those assets from other companies Whereas some of the traders have looked to take positions in the market as well. And some of that comes back to that where we talked about, you know, entering the market at a low point. Again, the traders have the financial resources to say, I can see that new building prices for this type of ship are at a multi-year low. I think that's a good time to go and take a punt on that and see if we can make some value with the price appreciating. So we definitely see it. I don't think that it's going to disappear anytime soon it's very much established now within the market. And are they ultimately competing with brokers or with ship? You know, where, where, where are they taking that market share from or where are they extracting that value from? They're not competing with brokers at all. I mean, they're all effectively our clients. We work with them very closely and we, we help them achieve their goals. They are, again, depending on where they're looking at, they're not really competing, I'd say, say with anyone. They're just looking to extract more value, I think, from the overall chain, really looking to use more intelligence as well rather than just saying what's the market price take it is very much that taking a position in the market trying to take that position ahead of time rather than just being reactive to whatever the price is you know anyone can say you know fix that the market price that's published by the various indices that are out there but it's how do you how do you anticipate and beat that and extract that value for the company i think that's all we've seen it seen it coming through you know when we look at the derivatives market much of the liquidity comes from the trading houses. I think many traditional owners are still fairly wary of the the FFA, the forward freight agreement market, which is effectively your tanker derivatives. We see the traders being very active in that. We see them using that to hedge their charter exposure. So often we'll see traders coming to the market to take a time charter, which is where you charter a ship for 
period of time could be two months but usually we're talking multi-year charters and then try and hedge that in the paper market which is not something that a traditional ship owner would do so they're here they're here to stay as i said they have established themselves they have to a certain extent as you you mentioned taken an owner's sort of position whether they have vessels on charter that they effectively operate as they own or whether they've invested in their own fleet but i think really it's just that trading mentality we haven't seen traditionally in the owning side but what i would say is that you know some of the established owners have looked to hire people with trading backgrounds now and hire people who've been freight traders for the major trading organizations and maybe trying to impart some of that into their own traditional ship owning companies yeah yeah we've certainly seen that as well okay good so i think we've got a, a great setup so as we look forward rather than you know don't want to get into the discussion of, of um, predicting freight rates, you know, in the next six months. But the next decade, at least up to 2030, you've got these two big pillars driving change. One is energy transition, decarbonisation, which I know you oversee um, the research for. The other is digitisation. On the digitisation front, you, you know, you've seen a plethora of new platforms providing data, real-time data to you know, everyone in the, in the space. How is digitization changing the role of those participants, owner, broker, and charterer? Sure. Well, I think one thing that digitization and the data we're doing is it's really leveling the playing field out. So if you go back 20, 30 years, probably not even that long ago, you know, a decade ago, we didn't have all these online platforms where you could easily search the name of a vessel, see where it's been, where it's going, and what cargo it's got on board. The only way to really find out what the vessels are really doing was to speak to the broker or you would own the vessel. So you'd very much have to work a lot harder to get the information. And of course, you wouldn't necessarily be given that information. It may be that for whatever reason, the owner of that information or the people who knew might have a vested interest in withholding that from you. Whereas now it's a lot easier to find out what vessels are not necessarily what they're doing, but you can certainly get a feel for what they're probably going to be doing. You know, it may be that on the piece of technology you're using, you can see the vessel is loaded in one port and is sailing in a certain direction, but you may not know exactly where it's going. You may not know how many different ports it's going to discharge or whose cargo it's got on board and what grades. You may or may not know that depending on certain variables, but certainly it has increased the amount of information that everyone has. I think in the past, again, as I said, you'd have to go to your broker to get this information. Now there is an opportunity in some cases that you don't need to go to your broker. So for us as brokers, you know, we have to think about, well, how do we continue to add value into the sector? And there are ways that we do that. But as I said, we have to work harder at that now as well. As I said, the owners have access to more information they've ever had. They probably and this is not necessarily a fair statement, but they have probably been slower to exploit that information than they used to. But we can now clearly see that more and more owners are getting access to some of the information we have access to and we, we subscribe to. The traders have had that information for probably longer than anyone else. And some of these tools that we're now using in the industry are developed by people who used to, who developed effectively in-house solutions um, for the trading companies. So that's kind of you're seeing more of the information that was more for the traders and the brokers pushing its way down the chain and that will only continue to spread that's very much on the market intelligence side if i look back at when i first started in the industry you know going back 12 years ago if i look at the information i had then versus what i have now and how many different platforms there are um you know it's almost unrecognizable and that's in a relatively short space of time mm. so yeah massive transformation there it will continue there's always this talk about Will there be a platform that comes out that effectively eradicates the need for shipbrokers? Um, of course, I'm going to say I don't think that's the so case. That was going to be my next question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course, of course it is. But but what I, I think um, you know, there's the mentality out there that that will, amongst some that that will never happen, and I think that's a very dangerous mentality. You know, it's been tried in the past and it's failed. It's not to say it wouldn't succeed in the future, but again, it all comes back to us as brokers saying, well. How do we find every single way possible to add more value? And that's one of the reasons why at Gibson's we've invested heavily in our research desk, not because we're necessarily um, 
researching the same data as everyone else, but it's what we do with that data and how we analyze it and form market opinions and insights that we can then share with our clients. So we're kind of saying, well, we've got the same access to similar data to our clients, although we do have our own proprietary information as well. How do we take it to the next level and how do we give our clients advice that will turn into either investment strategies, i.e. timing the acquisition of those vessels at the right time, or profitable chartering strategies, saying, well, when's a good time to take a vessel on a three or five-year time charter? Obviously, it's not going to be at the peak of the market to go for a five-year time charter because that cyclicality we spoke about will come into play. Why is it that a platform, you know, an ICE, a CMA, whatever it might be, hasn't come in, at least to some extent? Is it is it that the market is ultimately still quite small in terms of number of vessels and, and also quite bespoke in in needs that it just you wouldn't be able to come up with standard contracts to enable that market you know, to, to operate? Yeah. So we've seen in, in certain sectors in dry cargo, we've seen probably more of an effort to do so than others. Where we've seen those solutions perhaps fall down has been when the markets become incredibly volatile. And it's been getting the right offer from the right owner for the right ship in a volatile market becomes very difficult. When the market is relatively stable, those those solutions can work. When it comes to tankers, tankers operates in a less standardized way is probably the best way of putting it. So it's more difficult to enact. There's also, you know, if you go through a platform, you have to think, well, the platform would rely on the owners marketing the assets they have to the charterer correctly. Now, the way to get a higher freight rate is not to say, well, I've actually got 10 ships available when you've only got one. So there's there's always going to be that issue of how transparent do the people using the platform want to be. Likewise, from a charterer's perspective, if you've got 10 cargoes to fix, you're not going to want to advertise you've got 10. You want to say, I've got one, get that fixed, move on to the next. Otherwise, the owners will know you, you need a lot of ships. So it's how do you manage that kind of um, that kind of what you're trying to keep close to your chest, but still mm. get a platform working for you. And again, that's where the broker can come in to find the right ships at the right price. There's also a hell of a lot of variables in terms of what was the last cargo a vessel had? Is that compatible with the next cargo? You know, I, is the vessel suitable to load jet fuel basis its previous cargo? Has the vessel got to be somewhere for a dry dock or another booking somewhere? You know, there's so many different variables that make it very difficult to crack the solution. As I said, I'm not, I'm not one to dismiss this and say that it will never work. And I think our job, as I keep saying as brokers, is to make sure that we make sure that we stay relevant and we add as much value as possible. So therefore, people will still want to use us. Yeah. Well, I, sitting here as a search consultant, equally, there's we have seen platforms penetrate the recruitment market more broadly you know i think when you're talking about relatively small populations whether that be ships or people and it's highly tailored to a specific need you always have that you know it's just a lot greater demands to get these things um connected shall we say a lot of these cargoes are incredibly private and as soon as you start advertising you know your traded cargo through a platform and it may be a cargo you've not even you know as one on a tender or something yet you know you're suddenly showing your hand to the wider market Okay, perfect. So moving on, sort of final segment, energy transition. And I guess I want to hop back or loop back to the beginning of the conversation when you kind of had this, whilst the market was very cyclical, volatile, you had these big long-term trends that you could hang your proverbial hat on as a ship owner looking at 20 years horizon for your vessel within a certain degree of comfort, you would know that it would make its money back, provided you didn't buy at the very top of the market and had some calamity happen to the vessel. We face now a much more uncertain future on two levels, as I can see it, that affects ship owners, investors, whatever it might be. I'm sure there are more, but broad strokes, you've got this big long-term question over demand and that going down and therefore the impact on freight rates and so forth. Secondly, you have this big variable in terms of what type of vessel is going to be fit for a decarbonizing future. Can you help us unpick that? 
Yeah, I think it's quite a quite a meaty one we've got there. But I think um <laughs> yeah. about five minutes left. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think yeah, really quickly if we just start that, I think you talked about, you know, potential for declining demand story going forwards as we do have the energy transition and perhaps we're not moving as much crude oil around the world as we have in the past. When that will happen is a massive debate in itself and we won't get into that as such. As we said at the start, and we've said numerous times, the industry is cyclical. So we will go through periods of oversupply of ships and undersupply of ships and we'll see a, a cyclical market on that basis so it may be that demand starts declining and we have too many ships we have to see some vessels scrapped to lower investment and then the market recalibrates you know that that will likely happen but i think one of the key things is that okay you're buying an asset today it's going to be a, around for 20 years you're probably going to look to own it for at least 15 of those years you maybe get rid of it towards the end of its life sell it to someone else whatever but you say okay well i've got to choose a technology today that's going to work for the next 15 to 20 years what is that technology going to be because if we're saying that okay burning fuel oil is not the way to go there's too much carbon emissions what's what are the alternatives now the next realistic alternative right now is is lng it's certainly cleaner in some regards but we're seeing an increased awareness to the issue of methane emissions and not from the ship itself, but from the actual extraction of natural gas, the liquefaction, all the way through to when it's actually burnt in the ship's engine. So that's not looking certain either, although it's really the only alternative you have right now for the majority of the fleet. There's methanol and LPG, but that's more for those those small markets. So you've got to make that decision. What makes it even harder today? is that new building prices are very expensive. So if you, as I said earlier, if you order a new build VLCC today, it's going to cost you somewhere in the region of $100 million. But if you want it to be dual fuel LNG, it's going to cost you $110 million, maybe even a bit more than that. So you've already got that increase in cost. So you don't know if the demand will be there for it going forwards. You don't know if that's going to be the right fuel. At the same time, you've got to pay more for it. And you've got to see what you've really got to do is it's got to be led by the customer. It's got to be led by the charterer saying, we want dual fuel VLCCs and we're willing to pay a premium to compensate the owner for the risk and the higher cost to do that. So that's really kind of where we are right now. There's other solutions, ammonia, hydrogen. They're looking quite promising. But again, you can't really order those assets today. They're still in a development phase. So it's, it's a very difficult question for owners. We say really on our side and you know, even within our company, there's different views on this. But from my perspective, if I was going to have to invest in an asset today, I would probably order the most economical vessel I can of conventional design. So just having the best whole form I can get energy, any energy saving devices. And I would look to have fuel flexibility in mind, i.e. the ability to retrofit to a different technology down the line effectively deferring that capex until the view becomes much clearer because you choose the wrong one and you're left with an asset that's cost you more money and you're still going to have to pay to retrofit it or you're not going to earn premium earnings you would need to compensate for that investments yeah and a lot of those technologies are you know you mentioned hydrogen we've done episodes on hydrogen green ammonia they're all still very much in nascent the nascent development stage right these aren't proven technologies or they are, they don't have a, a supply chain supporting them. No, and everything, you know, you, you could look and say, well, well, what about biofuels? But then at the same time, you know, if biofuels come from the feedstock is effectively from crops, it's not used cooking oil, then that's then putting pressures on the food supply chain and possibly leading to deforestation. So everything has these unintended consequences. But I think what you will see, which I think is going to be the most important piece of guidance coming forwards, is looking at every individual fuel on a life cycle ghg basis so when you look at everything compared the full life cycle of you know extracting that fuel from the ground or wherever it's coming from and turning it into fuel and burning it in the ship's engine what overall has the best life cycle ghg position and that will be the fuel that we have to go for but again yeah. hopefully that will be a fuel that is you know because if it's green ammonia then it's going to take time for there to be a green ammonia supply chain to do that yeah. So it's really it's the it's the challenge of our time as we're all well aware and there's no easy answer to it. But the pressure is mounting from every side to to get this right. And does that another strategy which seems to be you correct me if I'm wrong, 
going on is you're probably better off trying to extend the life cycle, the lifespan of your current assets, or buy a secondhand ship because you can much easier predict the next five years than you can the next ten. And given the cyclical nature of the market, presumably it's going to come back pretty soon, especially with all of these pressures, meaning that actually financing new builds, investing in in the shipping market is is you know, is pretty low on some or you know on traditional sources of capitals plans because of these concerns over ESG, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, within shipping at the moment, there's still a lot of private owners, you know, particularly in, in Greece and countries like that, where they don't perhaps have the same sort of pressures, but there is a large stock listed element as well. And of course, they have to respond to the ESG pressure that they're under. They have to be seen to be doing something. And we'll see most stock listed companies now at least doing something that is thought to be greener, whether it's LNG, or whether it's ordering, we see ammonia ready vessels right now, which means that they could be retrofitted in the future. But the pressure is there and it's only going to increase as time goes by and people will have to act. But as you just alluded to, the easy option is, well, we know that from 2030 onwards, there's going to be tougher legislation at the International Maritime Organization level, which is really governing international shipping. We're probably not going to see any extremely tight legislation until 2030 so if you order, if you go and buy a secondhand vessel today which you know you're thinking okay i've got a five-year investment cycle on this then that's the more prudent approach to do or it's the, the lower risk approach you know again you look at it now and you look think about where freight rates are going i know we said we wouldn't do a freight forecast but you know one thing i can tell you is freight rates can't get much worse <laughs> so you know you are entering at a, a low point and, you know, eventually the market will move into an upcycle. There are some supportive fundamentals for that. I mean, most fundamentals for tankers are, are good right now, apart from the oil demand piece. And once that comes back, um, we should be into an upcycle in the market. Yeah, well, I think we can confidently say probably the next decade is going to be one of the most volatile for uh, the tanker market, given yeah. these sort of new pressures of decarbonisation as well as, you know, oil demand. And it's going to be a, a tricky, tricky space to, to navigate. Exactly. And we, you know, again, we, anything can happen in tankers, anything can happen, you know, the global economy, right? And we never even thought that COVID-19 or we never even thought a pandemic would come in and impact the world in the way it has done. So there could be anything on the horizon that's not our base case um, outside of everything we've discussed today. And that's really the thing with tankers, anything can happen. um, And it usually does. Mm. caveat emptor so uh, well it's been a great discussion i've really appreciated your your patience with me on the on the basic questions and um certainly uh you know look forward to to having you on in the future and discussing checking in on where we are on these on these big trends that are impacting the sector yeah there's a lot to discuss going forward so you know appreciate the time and uh yeah look forward to doing it again sometime thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.